Uh, but I want to remind us that Soma Eastside Church exists to make disciples who seek Jesus and inhabit the East Side with a saving power and his presence. And one of the ways that, uh, that Jesus leads us is through his word. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to talk about Romans chapter 8. And the theme today is secure. Bob Dylan wrote in 1983 this, this beautiful little song about a, about a blues guitarist. And he starts off the song by saying, I saw an arrow in the doorpost saying this land is condemned. And as, I, as God continues to add to my years in regular fashion, I am more and more convinced that if we have eyes to see in our, in our culture, in our city, in our region, in our world, that this land is condemned. I was thinking about this this morning or this, this week. We're all traveling on this rock. We're going about 67,000 miles per hour. And you're probably wondering, well, that's why it's so windy. Doesn't, doesn't work like that. That laugh got exactly what it, that joke got exactly what it deserved. Thank you for that. And of course, we're, you know, we're not the only object hurtling through space. There are approximately 1.1 and 1 to 1.9 million asteroids that are at least, at least over a kilometer in width or in diameter. And occasionally, these two things collide spectacularly. I mean, there's, there's, 10 to, there's 10 to 50 meteors a day that hit the Earth, but we're talking about you know, big asteroids that occasionally collide. Uh, if, you, if you believe the, the data, uh, at least 60 asteroids of three miles in diameter or larger have hit the Earth in the last 600 million years. Three of those are pretty famous. Uh, they hit in Quebec, in the, on the Yucatan Peninsula, and in Siberia. And one of those, probably one of Yucatan, knocked out the dinosaurs. Maybe you've seen this book cover. <laughs> if you haven't read it, it's really, it's, I think it's advertised as the saddest funny book you'll ever read, or the funniest sad book you'll ever read. But all this hurtling through space, asteroids going every which way, makes you feel a little insecure. Our lives are short. Uh, the last several years of our lives, if you, if you have a, you know, a typical end, are painful. Uh, I think you start hitting 40 or 50 and you just realize, okay, stuff is starting to break down and not work properly anymore. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay. There's not a whole lot of denial in this room. And it doesn't matter who you are. Former President Jimmy Carter entered hospice this week. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what medical care you have. It's just... We live on death row. And the revealed Word of God tells us that we live under judgment. And most everybody knows why. 
Most everybody knows the rules. And most everyone can see the misery when these rules are broken. You kind of wonder, at least I wonder, you know, you watch your, your kids grow up and they, have, they, have, they inhabit a different world than what you and I grew up in. Uh, you know, they, they quantify it. They gave each generation a name. And, you know, I'm, I'm X. Some of you are boomers. Uh, some of you are millennials. A couple of you are Z. But you just wonder, you know, what's going to pass on in the next generation as far as the rules go and are just understanding what these universal rules are. And it's amazing to how, if you look carefully, you can see they just, they're, they're written down for sure. Uh, you know, at one point they're even chiseled into, a, into tablets of stone, but they are most certainly written on our hearts. I'm driving my daughter and a friend back from some activity, and they're in the back seat complaining about somebody. They're just talking about a guy who was a cheater. I mean, these rules in our heart, are they're just there. They're there. You see, well, I mean, there's always a government official that's under investigation or on trial for perjury. All of my children have had instances where their father has been in their face with his finger pointed right at their sternum saying, you don't treat your mother like that ever. And my dad told me the same thing. I would bet every penny I had that his dad also told him the same thing. These rules are in our hearts. We see places like, we'll just pick on Chicago, just rampant chaos, dissent, and they are in just murder after murder after murder, and the, the mayor of Chicago right now is in real political trouble because of people just know that the, we can't live like this. So these rules are written down on our hearts. Often we treat them like suggestions or, you know, maybe they don't really apply to us in this particular situation, but the place that we inhabit has the signs of judgment. It's like we're living on death row. Just makes you feel insecure. I can remember walking around campus. So undergrad in Ohio, on campus, I was part of a clique that was like one half ruffians and one half barely saints. <laughs> and the ruffian part of the crew walking around campus, one of them says something ridiculously inappropriate and sacrilegious. And my friend Mike looks at them and, and then just starts distancing himself from them. And he says, I'm getting as far away from you as, as I can because I'm pretty sure lightning is going to hit. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know. It seems like with our culture, lightning's already hit multiple times. In many ways, I think, as we walk through life, it is right that we feel insecure. It's hard to, it's hard to not look around and just see the mess. More mass shootings this week. And you just cannot get your mind around why. What would possess someone to kill a bunch of innocent people and then turn a gun on themselves? Just, it doesn't make any sense. As the Russians continue to attack Ukraine, uh, they described it this week as just thousands of 
men dead in trenches again. There are 46,000 divorces a week in America. There are 1.2 million suicide attempts a year. Judgment. Saw an arrow on a doorpost. Last week we looked at the apostle's message regarding the trouble we are in. And he summarizes the whole of morally limited human existence thus. And this is from Romans chapter 7. Just a little bit of review. He said, I have discovered this principle of life. So here is, is the apostle Paul 2,000 years ago observing both a different world and exactly the same world. He says, I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another law, another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? So here we are, surrounded by unmistakable evidence that we are under judgment, that we are effectively sitting on death row. And whether it is an asteroid or, or frankly, our neighbor, or it's just some disease that we don't see coming. Maybe this is depressing. Maybe this isn't why you came this morning to hear this. But I think it's wisdom for us to face reality. To look around us and describe what we see. But what is amazing about the passage we have this morning is that there is hope. There is real hope. We actually can live secure among all this, just like our brothers and sisters have lived secure before us as they have lived in this world, but not of this world. Frankly, this morning, this is a glorious passage of Scripture. So setting this up, the apostle gives us a name in, in Romans chapter 7. He is a different king, and this is a different kingdom. This is an already, not yet, kingdom of love and light and life. So Romans chapter 8. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And I think we should memorize this as a group. So I want you to repeat this phrase after me. So now there is no condemnation... For those who belong to Christ Jesus. So, no, there, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our own sinful nature. 
So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So I started off today by giving you all sorts of reasons to be insecure. And I want to now move on to why you should feel secure. So that you have the power and the strength to walk in the world, but not of the world. First, be secure. Condemnation has been replaced with belonging. So there was condemnation, and all of us, from the moment of conception, have had a sin nature. So we start off condemned. Paul announces to us that that God has replaced condemnation with belonging. And is there any word that you could offer to an insecure person that is more beautiful than belonging? Being in a, in a world that is under judgment, being in a place where you're effectively on death row, is a place of deep insecurity because you feel outside. You feel vulnerable. Belonging is you feel safe and loved and accepted. And in that moment, your only fear is, how long will this last? But what if you are accepted and loved by someone who never changes, who, has, who is all-powerful? Paul is effectively bringing this, this word to the Romans, and it's not to us, but it's for us. And if we could somehow grasp this passage, you would never feel insecure again. But it is hard for us as we're surrounded by all this condemnation, all this death and destruction and difficulty. It's hard for us to fully grasp it. But brothers and sisters, you have been pardoned. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you have been pardoned. I spent a lot of time searching for famous pardons this week. I'm just trying to figure out a way to connect with you. So Samuel Mudd, American doctor from Maryland. He had a a friend named John Wilkes Booth. And John would often visit. He was an actor. And they would talk about how they were, you know, they were both in favor of the South in the Civil War. But his friend Booth just had some crazy ideas about how he wanted to, how he wanted to get revenge on the North. Uh, he ends up going, up going and killing Abraham Lincoln. And then on his way out of town, because, you know, after he, killed, after he shot Lincoln, he jumped on the stage, broke his leg, said some, quoted Shakespeare, ran off, and the first place he stops is his, old, his friend Samuel Mudd's house. 
Samuel Mudd works on his leg a little bit, sends him on his way, doesn't bother to report as he hears this, these things about this guy that just shot the president, doesn't bother to report to the authorities that he's seen him. And so after they find Booth, they track him back to stopping at Mudd's house. And, well, if I were punny, I would say his name was therefore Mudd. Uh, but I'm not. And, but he was tried in a military tribunal, found guilty of treason. And just missed the unanimous vote by one, where he would have been immediately executed. So he, he goes to jail. He is in a really lousy open air cell. Um, somewhere around 1869, however, um, he has enough influential friends that talk Andrew Johnson into pardoning him. So Andrew Johnson has his staff write up the pardon. He signs the bottom line. It is extended to Samuel Mudd. Samuel Mudd said, I accept it, and he is a free man. Brothers and sisters, God has extended each and every one of you a pardon. For all the things that you've done that you shouldn't have done. Deserved? No. Pardoned? Yes. No longer condemned. Beyond that, in this verse, I mean, that's where it starts. Pretty amazing to not have to pay for what you've, you've done. Pretty, pretty amazing if you get your mind around that. Beyond that, you also have the power of the Spirit inside you. And we'll explain that a little bit more in a minute, but Paul also, the apostle, also says that Jesus has saved you by bearing your sin on his sinless body. And I am not going to assume in this audience that all of you understand what the Old Testament says as far as sacrifices. And I will... I'll summarize a little bit of it. I'm not going to summarize the whole system. It's just, it's enough to tell you that Jesus, in some ways, in, in every way, completes the whole sacrificial system. So what I'm going to describe to you is a bit of it, a piece of it, so perhaps you can understand more concretely what Paul, what Paul is saying when he writes that Jesus bore your sins on his own mortal body. So transport yourself back. You know, we, we're already here at, uh, let's say, uh, 50 or 60 A.D. Let's just transport you back a couple, uh, maybe a thousand years before that, into the, the temple system, and you, you go to the temple, and you go to, the once, you go to a ceremony that happens once a year, and they are, the whole purpose of everybody in the nation of Israel coming together is to have their sins forgiven. And so the ceremony is, is complicated, but part of the ceremony is, is bringing a goat forward, and this goat comes before the high priest, and the high priest puts his hands on top of the goat and then declares out loud the sins of the nation of Israel. And I don't know how big the categories were. I don't know how long it took, but the sins of the people were declared. Murder treason, rape, 
abuse, not honoring father and mother, coveting, greed, you name it. All these sins are named, and then someone who is there waiting takes the goat, leads the goat to the outside of the city, and on this escaped goat, on this scapegoat who has who all of the sins of the people have been put on is now outside the city, never to be seen again, and your sins have escaped. They are gone. They are not yours any longer. Jesus has taken your sins and paid for them outside the city. Jesus has, God has placed the sins of all of us on his perfect head and let him pay for them, and they are gone. You are pardoned. And Paul says, the just requirement of the law is now satisfied. You have been given a pardon. There is no condemnation for you now. And now, as a subject of this new king, a citizen of this new kingdom, you are now free to follow the Spirit, surrounded by the lost in this lost world. Paul continues. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8. Those who are now, those who are dominated by the sinful nature, think about, the sin, think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That is why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. So the second point is rest secure. You are now led by the Holy Spirit. Previously, you could not please God. Now you can, because you are led by, inhabited by the Holy Spirit. So life and peace for those of you who follow Jesus, who have put your trust in Jesus, who have embraced this pardon by Jesus, can now live according to the Spirit. And that is something you could never do before that pardon was extended to you and you accepted it. Verse 9 continues, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, and remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all, and Christ lives within you, so that even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. This Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, and just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. So there's a lot there, and Paul uses a little bit different rhetorical style than you and I do. Paul is basically going around hitting the same point over and over again using different words to, to further illustrate it. But let me just present it to you in linear 
Western way so you can follow. One, the Spirit lives in you. In a sense, the, the sin nature that you were born with has been replaced by, a, by the Holy Spirit, and you now have the ability to please God. And you have real power in you. And this one is difficult to fully explain, but the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now in you. And I would say that uh, Paul speaks of this by experience. Paul went through things like, well, a lot of people tried to kill him. So he brushed off rocks, he lived through shipwrecks, he sang when he was in prison. He sang through earthquakes. Little Paul, who by all accounts wasn't that great of a speaker, completely turned the ancient world upside down. And probably one of the proofs is here we are in the New Money suburbs of Issaquah still talking about him. What gave him that power? The Holy Spirit did. And I would say as a, as a historian, it's amazing to watch as the gospel moves from civilization to civilization to civilization to civilization. One of the marks of the Holy Spirit entering a civilization is the supernatural calm given to the people who are his missionaries. I remember reading last year about a, about a group of African young ladies, you know, 12 to 17, kidnapped by Muslim terrorists and they were put in a, in a camp and they were told that they needed to convert to Islam and then be married to Islamic fighters. And that they weren't gonna give them any food until they did and, what, and their response was to sing. And to sing. And to sing praises to Jesus. The power of the Spirit is in you when you accept this pardon, when you, when you just say, okay, God, I, I'm not going to live any longer according to the world. I'm going to live according to your spirit, and I am all in for you. The power there is remarkable. But I think so often you and I just kind of, you know, we kind of wade in, we kind of put our toe in the water instead of, of jumping in like Peter did. Paul says in chapter, in verse 12 of, of chapter 8, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do, for if you live by its dictates, you will die. But through the power of the Spirit, you have put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Isn't this amazing? I mean, not only does God pardon us, not only does he give us a, a power that we, we, can't, we can't even understand, but he also says, you are now my adopted children. And Paul summarizes this in verse 15 through 17. So you, you haven't received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba. Now we call him Papa. 
Now we call him Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his, his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So, brothers and sisters, in the midst of all of this signs, all these signs of condemnation, all these signs of judgment, all of this insecurity, rest secure because you are children of God. You're not slaves. You're not fearful. You're children of God. You are heirs of God. You are ridiculously rich in the spiritual realms. You have no idea. If we could just get a, just even a small glimpse of this, just a tiny glimpse of this. What are the implications? Arrow on the, arrow on the, door pest, arrow on the doorpost. Um, you and I do not have to live afraid. You and I do not have to live as if we are still condemned. And there, I imagine there, in an audience this size, there is somebody here who has never accepted the pardon offered to you by God. You know, in the history of presidential pardons, and, and I don't know if you guys notice these things, you know, at the end of every, every president's terms, there's a whole list of people that are pardoned. And some of them are sketchy, like they're relatives. Like, what is this? But in the history of the presidential pardons, there was one person who refused it. His name was George. George Wilson. In case you're ever in a trivia game, you're like, what's the one person that... George. April 1830, George Wilson was found guilty of obstructing delivery of the mail. So he stood at the post office and he said, "Uh uh-uh. Well, then he also robbed the mailman and killed him. And his friend James was with him. And so the court sentenced Wilson and James to death, and Porter was hanged. But then President Andrew Jackson intervened. We're not sure why he did. But But someone convinced him there were extenuating circumstances for George to hold up the mail, steal the mail, and kill the person delivering the mail. And so a presidential pardon was issued, and they gave it, they, they handed it to George, and this is what George did. Hmm. And he goes before court, and you know, the, the, the person in charge of executing George is like, can I get some clarity here? You've got a pardon written, but George won't accept it. And the judge asked George, you know, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they're asking George, why don't you want to accept this pardon for this? And this is my historian's interpretation of this, because this is where it starts to get sketchy and difficult to understand. George wanted to make sure that all of the bad things that he did were covered. And so it's not like you're going to go before the judge and say, "Um, could you please specifically say which things are covered by this pardon? Because I want to make sure this, this, and this are covered. Because that puts you in an awfully vulnerable spot if they're not. So he refuses the pardon. Hmm. There's some controversy at what happens next. According to the Smithsonian, he was hanged. But you just think to yourself, George, you're an absolute, at least double 
idiot. One, robbing and killing the mailman, and two, not taking the pardon when it's offered. Brothers and sisters, you and I live in a condemned place. We live on death row. God tells you, God effectively offers and says, I have this pardon. And I have this pardon that not only is going to forgive you for your part, your complicity in all this, but it also is just my way of saying that you have wandered away from me and I want you back. I want you back. I want a relationship with you. When he created the first man, the first woman in the Garden of Eden, and they disobeyed him, his response was to say, Adam, where are you? Come back. And as every single generation that has followed Adam and Eve has done the same thing, wandered away from God, God just says, come back. Come back. So that invitation is yours today. The second is, uh, and that, I mean, the, to respond, it, all you have to do is just say, okay, God. I remember, remember sitting in a place like this. The, there were pews. They weren't chairs. They were beautiful, deep mahogany with, with crimson, not weird blue. But I've been, I've sat in those chairs. I remember just, you know, just sitting there and, you know, the, the, the pastor who looked like me that had a little less hair and yelled a little bit more um, just basically said, this is all you have to pray. He called it a sinner's prayer, but basically what it's just saying is, God, I accept your son. I have been living as my own king. I now accept your kingship. I have been living under the influence of all this condemned death row culture. But what I want to do today is just to say, I accept your kingdom. I want to accept Jesus' gift I want to accept Jesus is taking all of my sins outside the city as far away as the east is from the west. It's just a simple prayer of yes. That's the first implication. The second is for uh, those of you who have already made that, that commitment. You, you actually have a relationship with God. I just would like to remind you that there is a reason why God gives us this unbelievable security. You know, the security that comes from belonging, the security comes from having the Holy Spirit inside us, the security that comes from knowing that we are an heir of God and therefore we have everything we could possibly need. And the security that comes from knowing that, uh, that we are adopted children of the Most High. He actually wants us to now, once we accept him, once we learn what our gift is, to actually go out and join him in his work in this world. And the reason why I think I repeat it so often to you is because I also need it. That he is calling us to go all in. It's amazing, if you look through Scripture, what God does through sinful, broken, not-that-skilled people who are just all in. My Bible study on Fridays, and I look around the room, there's several of you who are in this Bible study. We've been going through the obscure book of 2 Kings, and some of the people in the Bible study complain about the fact that we're still going through 2 Kings. <laughs> but what we're going to study next week this Friday, little spoiler, um, is, is about Hezekiah. 
And Hezekiah is, at this point, is, he's the king of Judah, and it's a tiny nation, and they don't have a lot of soldiers. And they don't have a lot of wealth. And they are faced with the king of Assyria, Shenericide. And he is one of the most brutal, ruthless, powerful kings of Assyrian history. And he's got the whole place surrounded. And he calls for, calls for Isaiah, uh, the king of Israel calls for Isaiah and says, what do we do? And he says, oh, don't worry about it. And, if, and again, spoiler report, spoiler alert. God takes care of Hezekiah and Judah. It's amazing what he does through people whose hearts are completely his. Can you imagine if, I mean, I, we've got several of you that I see in this room that are all in. What if we all were all in? Wouldn't God do some amazing things on the east side if we were all in? All in. You guys heard of uh, the difficulties of Minneapolis? Yeah. Complete, utter societal chaos. Signs of judgment everywhere. Read this story this week. This is, I'm just going to read part of it. And could you, you can put the picture up for me. This is, the, this is a church, um, sort of a church parking lot. I'm not going to explain the liquor store. I don't think that's part of the deal. But these are kids from the church repairing the parking lot. If you look very carefully behind them, you will see there is, there is a billboard that says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation within God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And this is the, the backstory to this. This is a, a parking lot for a, a convenience store. Here's the story summarized. Most people don't take real estate advice from a drug dealer behind a gas station in North Minneapolis. But Larry Cook... Bishop, love that, of real believers face center. I just think we need to rediscover Bishop. That's another story. <laughs> Putting that can of worms back away. Bishop of real believers face center is not most people. A year ago, he confronted some young men selling narcotics in the alley between his church and the corner store. And this corner store seemed to do more business in illegal goods than snacks or fuel. And things got heated pretty quick. Voices were raised. So he's confronting these, these, these kids selling drugs. Bishop, Bishop tells them, get out of here. Stop selling drugs. And they're like, well, the store owner doesn't care. Why do you care? Uh, Cook's wife, um, Bishop Cook's wife, Sharon, is the one reporting all this. Uh, she says, well, the young men told, told them, if you want to do something about it, you need to buy the gas station. Bishop responds, I will. So he takes us for the church. The church says, that's kind of expensive. Um, what the man selling drugs didn't know is that Cook had actually been thinking about buying the store for the last 25 years. He's a church planner. And he's seen that little church from eight grow to 200. He'd seen, their, he'd seen drug dealer after drug dealer after drug dealer come to Jesus, change their life. 
He believed that he was being called, and when the time was right, God would expand his ministry to include the sore spot in the neighborhood, the store at the corner of a busy intersection. So that fall, the store came up for sale, and Cook and his wife put everything they had toward the purchase of the $3 million property. They've now reopened it under the name The Lion's Den, a testament to faith surrounded by danger and their belief that even urban blight can be redeemed. This is what Jesus would do, Sharon Cook said. If he was walking around in 2023, he would buy this gas station. He would feed the hungry. He would lend a helping hand to the elderly the same way that we're doing. So on November 1st, Cook signed the papers and he went and laid hands on the property again, giving thanks to God. The corner store is set up as an independent entity, but the church sees it as a place for ministry. And as Larry Cook goes from church to the store and store to the church, he proclaims with his life that change is possible. And he says, it's like we're having an evangelism day every day now. Ministry just walks up to me. I'm able to minister people, lay hands on people, pray for the sick, feed the hungry. It is a non-stop effort. Sometimes, Cook even sees the young man who told him to buy the store. He stopped in to buy snacks shortly after the purchase. And the young man looked at him and said, Huh, you all really bought it. You know what? I can't even be mad. Respect. <laughs> all in. All in. I know some of you are, are praying for your neighbors praying for your coworkers, praying for your kids. You're thinking to yourself, how do we serve this community? How do we do that in a meaningful way? How do we fix what's broken? How do we help those marriages that are in trouble? How do we adopt children so they have a place to live? I don't know what God has for you, but I want to plead with you that the God has given you this security, this salvation, this pardon, this unbelievable spiritual riches, this privilege to be his adopted kids so that you can go and be his hands and feet and bring hope to this cursed world. I'm going to invite the band up and I'm going to slightly rebuke Bob Dylan. He said, there's an arrow on the doorpost saying this land is condemned. All the way from New Orleans to Jerusalem. I would also say, brothers and sisters in Christ, that all over this land, there are crosses on top of church buildings, which proclaims that there is a different king and there is a different kingdom, and you and I get to be part of that. So I just encourage you to... Embrace what God is calling you to do. To one, accept his invitation to that pardon. And two, to go all in. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, we praise you. God, thank you for that invitation you offered to me. in 1989. Father, I had no idea what, what I was saying yes to. I just knew that I needed you. 
Father, thank you for entering my heart in that moment when I said yes. And Father, thank you for all the ways that you have shown me since that day that you love me and that you are with me and that you'll never leave me or forsake me. Thank you for that sense of belonging. And Father, I know there are people here today that need to, need to accept that invitation. Father, I just pray that you would press it on our heart in the most warm and inviting way. And Father, I also know there are people here today that have been just kind of dipping their toes in. Father, I just pray they would go all in for the sake of your mission, for the sake of your people, for the sake of hope. Father, help us to be a church that is in the world but not of the world and sees these signs of judgment not as something that should depress us and force us into cynicism, but instead to show us, Father, that there is a real need that only you can meet. So, Father, please direct us as missional communities, as a church as a whole, how you want us to serve this community. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.